Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The big news of the week is that Jerome Powell, in his virtual Jackson Hole symposium speech, finally made it official. The Fed's infamous 2% inflation target is now not really a hard number, but an average, meaning that each year is looked at in relation to the years that preceded it. So prior to this change of a mandate, the Fed was claiming that each year its target was to have a 2% rate of inflation. Now the target is that over the course of time, inflation is supposed to average 2%. And the reason the Fed is able to say this is because based on the measures that the Fed uses to calculate inflation, or at least the change in consumer prices, over the last many, many years, the rate has been below 2%. So based on the Fed's new uh, target of an average rate of 2%, future inflation rates need to be above 2%. And of course, the Fed talks to a symmetrical uh, amount above, or obviously to create an average, you'd have to have some symmetry. But to the extent that we had several years of 1.5% inflation, that would require several years of 2.5% inflation in order to create a 2% average. But what the Fed has effectively done, and nobody is really talking about this, is it really raised its inflation target except we don't actually know what that target is, so it's kind of a moving target. But if we've had all of these years of below 2% inflation, and again, I'm using the word inflation the way the Fed uses it, not what it actually means. So I'm not referring to the expansion of the money supply, but the increase in consumer prices that results from that expansion, that inflation. But 
given that the official CPI has been below 2% for all of these years, the only way to bring the average up to 2% is for the Fed to now target an inflation rate above 2%. So that's really what the Fed has done. It's not that they just said we want inflation to average 2%. What they're saying is that they want future inflation to be higher than 2% so that we can average out all this low inflation that we've had in the past. Now, of course, the media did cover this, at least the financial media, but not from the angle that it should. I mean, it's amazing, or maybe not amazing, uh, because nothing really amazes me anymore when it comes to the lack of understanding or just outright financial ignorance on the part of the mainstream financial media. But the story is actually a lot bigger and a lot more significant. Uh, and, you know, it actually should um, reveal to people that there's a much larger problem in the economy uh, than people are willing to acknowledge. Now, first of all, nobody is really talking about why we need to make up for lower inflation in the past. I mean, if we had inflation that was only 1% last year, why would we need 3% inflation this year? I mean, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, if you go back to the BS reason for the 2% target, and again, even before I get to that, I want to talk about the evolution of this so-called target because it wasn't always there. And I've mentioned this in the past in podcasts, but it's a good time uh, to bring it up again, especially since I do have a lot of new listeners uh, who don't necessarily uh, remember or didn't hear the earlier podcast. But once upon a time, there was no official target at all. Uh, the Fed just was supposed to have price stability. And what does price stability mean? Well, it's pretty simple. It means that prices are stable. Now, how do you define stable? Well, not moving, the same, right? Stable prices don't go up and they don't go down. Now, before they had a mission of price stability, the natural tendency of prices is to fall. You know, that's what happened for the 100-year time period from 1800 to 1900, we had a steady decline in prices interrupted occasionally by inflationary periods like the uh, Civil War, where there was uh, money printed for the first time, the, the greenbacks. But in general, we had steadily declining prices for that entire century. And so the goal of the Federal Reserve, which didn't come in until 1913, if its goal was price stability, the Fed was supposed to prevent prices from going down and instead to keep them stable. Now, I would argue that there's no reason for that, that falling prices represent a benefit to the economy. Uh, they represent a benefit to consumers. They represent a benefit to businesses, which can have do better volume uh, when prices are lower uh, because their customers can afford to buy more stuff. So I think that there are incredible benefits to a declining cost of living. I think everybody ends up benefiting with a rising standard of living. But the initial mistake of the Fed was to believe that uh, declining prices were problematic. And so instead of having prices that slowly declined over time, the goal of the Fed would be to have stable prices where they remain the same over time. Well, it didn't take long, and I'm not sure how long, but eventually the definition of price stability 
became inflation of less than 2%. And so that 2% number was initially introduced by the Fed as being a ceiling, right? Meaning that the Fed would make sure that inflation was less than 2%, not 2% as a target, but 2% as a ceiling. So any inflation rate below 2% was considered stable prices. But of course, the lower, the better. When the Fed initially uh, talked about a 2% ceiling, if inflation was 1% during the year, they wouldn't think that was problematic. They would think that was great because they were a whole percentage point below the ceiling. And in fact, the closer they got to zero, the better they performed their job because stable prices would be zero increases. So to the extent that you have a small increase, then you're not quite as stable But they said, as long as that increase is below 2%, we'll count it as being stable. But if it got above 2%, then we would have to do something to get the number back below 2%. So it started off as a ceiling. Eventually, the ceiling became a target. This is how the policy evolved. Eventually, the Federal Reserve began saying that 2% wasn't the ceiling. It was actually a target, that they needed to hit 2%. And so... Instead of being happy with 1% inflation because it was less than the 2% ceiling, now it was a problem because they needed to get it up to 2% and it was only 1%. But it never really made sense that the Fed would target 2% inflation because there was no logical reason why 2% inflation was better than 1% inflation. But here is the reason that the Fed came up with. And of course, it's all BS. They just had to rationalize, uh, you know, wanting more inflation, even though it's not a good thing. But the way the Fed explained it was that they needed a buffer because the worst thing that could happen to the economy, according to the Fed, was that consumer prices went down, right? If we had deflation, the way they define it, uh, and that if consumer prices went down, that it would be so bad that the Fed needs to make sure there's at least enough of a cushion, right, distance between the zero bound and the inflation rate just in case we, you know, accidentally fell below that bound. So the Fed said that we need to make sure that inflation is at least 2% to make sure that it's not negative. Because if we're shooting for 2% and we end up with 1% or a half a percent, well, it's okay. We just have to make sure we have a big enough cushion to guard against the possibility of us ever getting a negative number. So, you know, we were going to deal with a little higher inflation just as an insurance against falling prices, which, of course, was all BS. But that was their explanation. But, of course, that doesn't explain why now the Fed says that we need to have an average rate of 2%, because by definition, if in prior years, the inflation rate was positive, whether it was positive a half a percent or one percent or one and a half percent. It means that in every year that inflation was above zero, we dodged that bullet of falling prices. So we didn't have falling prices in the past. So how does having an inflation rate above two percent now do anything? I mean, there's no reason for that. And we don't need an even bigger cushion now to make sure that we don't have falling prices. We never had falling prices before. Why should we have them again? It doesn't make any sense to say because uh, we didn't have 
enough inflation in the past that we need to have even more inflation in the future because every year that we have inflation, the cost of living goes up. If the goal of the Fed is to just make sure that the cost of living doesn't go down, they already succeeded. They already achieved that goal. Why do they have to inflict additional pain on the population by saying, you know what, your cost of living didn't go up quite as much as it could have in years of past. So now we got to make sure that we average out to 2%. So because your cost of living only went up by 1% for the last few years, now we have to make sure it goes up by 3% over the next few years so that you catch up. None of that makes any sense, especially if you remember the original justification for moving the 2% ceiling to a target. That justification doesn't make any sense now in moving the annual target to an annual average that effectively raises the target in the future. The bottom line is what no one seems to understand is all of this is BS. The Fed is just making stuff up because it is in a predicament of its own creation. What the Fed has done with all of its prior monetary stimulus is created a situation where the Fed can never actually fight the inflation that it creates. That's why the Fed is now saying we're going to let inflation run hotter because they have no choice. It's not because this is good for the economy. It's not. It is necessary to keep the bubble from deflating. So if the Fed's goal is to prop up the stock market to prevent the stock market from coming down, then they need more inflation because it's inflation that's propping the stock market up. The same thing with the real estate market and the bond market and, in fact, if the Fed wants to enable large government deficits, if they want to enable the government to keep borrowing money, then the only way to make that possible is to keep creating inflation because the Federal Reserve needs to monetize this debt by printing money, by expanding the money supply, by creating inflation, which, of course, is going to put upward pressure on consumer prices. But the question that nobody is asking apart from the fact is why do we need hotter inflation than what we already have, is what will the Fed do in the event that inflation heats up too much? What if it gets too hot? How is the Fed going to put out the fire? It can't. It's impossible. Which means the Fed has to constantly move the goalposts on its, on its mission. And so the question is, what's next? Right? What are they going to say once the average rate of inflation is well above 3%. Now, I suppose since we, in theory, had inflation below uh, you know, 2% for the last decade, we could actually have 4 or 5% inflation for a year or two, and they can still go back and say, well, you know, if we average the last 12 years, we're still below 2%, so we still have some catching up to do. But at some point, the official inflation rates are going to be so high that even if you average in all of the prior years where they were below 2%, we're still going to be above 2%. But then again, the Fed will come back with, with, with a new mandate. I mean, maybe it'll finally have to say that now we're shooting for an average inflation rate of 3%. And, you know, since we have so many years in the past where the official rates were so low, that's going to always weigh down the average. So no matter how high inflation is, as long as they're keeping moving the goalposts based on an average, 
that's still going to leave room for inflation to get hotter and hotter. But of course, at some point, the official numbers will be so far above uh, the so-called average uh, that they're just going to be a joke. In fact, maybe even long before that happens, we're going to get a complete dollar crash. But until that happens, I suppose the Fed can get away with this, especially since nobody is questioning uh, the absurdity of what they're doing. Of course, Wall Street is happy as can be uh, because this is great news for the stock market because the Fed is basically saying, hey, if you're worried that the Fed might raise interest rates, we're never going to do it. Don't worry about hotter than expected inflation numbers because they're not going to push the average for all these past years back up above 2%. So we got you covered. So this is great news as far as the stock market is concerned. And as far as uh, you know, all the big asset management companies that are going to generate higher fees off of higher nominal stock prices, no one in government is objecting to this. This is music to their ears. This is exactly what politicians need if they want to keep on spending money with reckless abandon, if they want to keep on promising something for nothing. The only way they can do that is if the promises are paid for uh, by inflation. Now, of course, the public doesn't realize that inflation is a bill that they're going to have to pay. Uh, so that enables the politicians to continue to fool the public into thinking uh, that they're getting something for nothing. But we're not getting anything for nothing. In fact, all of this extra inflation is going to damage the real economy. That is the ultimate irony of this, is that the Fed allowing money to lose value, allowing people's savings and wages to lose purchasing power, is not good for the economy. It may be good for the stock market in keeping a bubble inflated and keeping prices high. It may be good for maintaining the illusion that we have economic growth uh, because we're measuring that growth uh, in nominal terms and not adjusting it for the decline in the value of money. But it's not good for the economy. In fact, one of the biggest ironies is that right now you actually have a lot of people in Congress who specifically want to charge the Federal Reserve with the added mandate of tackling the problems of wealth inequality, particularly racially based inequality, right, where you have a large gap in the relative wealth of white and black Americans. And Congressman actually want the Federal Reserve to do something about this problem, to close the gap, the inequality gap. Now, how they're going to do that, especially uh, along racial lines, they simply can't do that. But the other irony of it is one of the reasons that the income inequality gap is so large is because of current Fed policy. So in a way, the Federal Reserve could do something to close that gap, by reversing the current policy that's helping to widen that gap, which is keeping interest rates artificially low and creating inflation. But now the congressmen who actually want the Fed to do something about making the gap narrower are now happy that they're about to pursue a policy that will widen it even further. Because the extra inflation that the Federal Reserve wants to create it only helps the rich. How does it help them? Well, it pushes up the value of their assets. And when you are counting wealth, well, you're adding up assets. And so the wealthy are getting a lot wealthier 
as a result of these policies. Obviously, look at the the super rich. Uh, Look at Elon Musk is now worth more than $100 billion, as is Mark Zuckerberg. Um, Jeff Bezos now is worth more than $200 billion. And that's after he gave, you know, I don't know how much $40 billion uh, to his ex-wife McKinsey, who's probably worth more than $50 billion by now on her own. Uh, But all of the fortunes of the super rich are being inflated by the Fed. This bubble is causing all these stock prices to go up. And of course, not everybody is a multi-billionaire like these tech titans, but you do have a lot of Americans who have a lot of money in the stock market, and that is their wealth. And that wealth is now going to have a bigger number associated with it because of the inflation that the Federal Reserve is creating. But the problem is, at the bottom end of the spectrum, lower income people don't have any money in the stock market. They don't have any wealth. A lot of people at the lower income don't even own their homes. They're renting their homes. And inflation is going to put more upward pressure on rents. Their landlords are going to have to increase the rents they're charging to cover the higher costs that are going to be associated with the inflation that the Federal Reserve is creating. In fact, the cost of everything is going to be going up for people that don't own any assets and that are living paycheck to paycheck. The real value of their paychecks is going to be diminished by the inflation tax, as will the value of any savings uh, that they happen to have. It's the debts of the rich that end up getting um, eradicated by inflation, and it's the assets of the poor, uh, their savings, that get eviscerated. Uh, And so the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and so this new policy of more inflation is going to exacerbate and widen the very wealth inequality gap that so many liberals are wanting the Fed to help close. And again, to show you how little people understand, it's the left that's actually the most vocal in pushing the Fed towards allowing more inflation, wanting more inflation without even realizing that the inflation that they want is actually hurting the most the very people that they think is going to help. Because the Fed thinks that, or not just the Fed, uh, the liberals think that there's this Phillips curve, there's this trade-off between inflation and employment. And so they believe that when the Fed tries to limit inflation, that it ultimately limits employment opportunities, that people are thrown out of work by the Fed's fixation on keeping low inflation. And that if we just allow more inflation, that will allow more employment and a lower unemployment rate. And that is all BS. In fact, that is one of the other things that the media gets wrong when they are reporting on what the Fed is doing, as if it somehow relates to a rejection of the Phillips curve. The Phillips curve was always BS. It it never made any sense. Inflation is not caused by people working. In fact, if you're going to define inflation as rising prices, if you're going to misdefine it like that, people working does not result in prices going up. It actually results in prices going down. Because if more people are working, then more stuff is being produced. You have more services and you have more goods. Well, as you increase the supply of goods and services, the price can come down. It's when people are not working and they're not producing that the supply of goods and services goes down. And that is when prices go up. So there was never really a link between 
employment and inflation. That link existed only in the minds of the Keynesian economists who signed on to it. And it should have been fully discredited during the 1970s, which surprised the hell out of all the Keynesians because that doctrine existed before the 70s. And then all of a sudden we had stagflation where we had a weak economy, we had rising unemployment and rising consumer prices, and that basically blew apart the Phillips curve. Right? And the Keynesians had no way of explaining what they were observing because according to their models, it couldn't happen. But it did happen because their models were worthless. And, and so the Phillips curve has never been there. So it's not about the Fed finally rejecting it. It, it, it. it was disproven a long time ago. Inflation is not caused by people working. It's caused by the Fed printing money. Now, when the Fed prints money, sometimes consumer prices don't go up, especially if you're not measuring them properly. Sometimes it prevents consumer prices from going down. And sometimes inflation could be focused more on the price of financial assets like real estate, stocks, bonds, and things like that than it is on consumer goods, especially if you have other increases in efficiencies and productivity that are otherwise putting downward pressure on consumer prices. And that downward pressure is being somewhat ameliorated uh, by the upward pressure being put on prices by the Fed. But if the market is putting more downward pressure on prices by improvements in efficiencies in production, then the upward pressure that the Fed is putting through creating inflation, then you can have the Fed creating inflation and you can have prices going down. But in the long run, all that inflation is ultimately going to result in a big spike in consumer prices. And that is exactly where we're headed And the people who are going to be hurt most by the huge increase in the cost of living are going to be those that can least afford it. They're going to be the lower class and then to a lesser extent, the middle class. And in fact, I think most of the middle class will be impoverished into the lower class as a result of the severity of the inflation that the Fed is unleashing. Not only that it is preparing to unleash in the future, but it has already unleashed in the past It just hasn't caught up to us yet in the supermarket. It has in the stock market, uh, but it will in the supermarket. And that's when it really starts to hurt. But the other problem that everybody is completely ignoring is what happens in the future once the inflation rate averages out to 2% or exceeds 2%, right? What happens if inflation gets hotter than the Fed is hoping for. Because after all, they're not perfect, right? They can't micromanage a precise inflation rate. And what if it turns out that by letting inflation run hot, it runs too hot and the Fed now has to dial it back down, right? What if the inflation rate gets to a three or a 4% average? Now, again, as I've said, I know that no matter how high the average gets, they're going to keep on moving the goalposts. But everybody else doesn't know that. They actually believe the Fed. They think the Fed is serious about a 2% average. So they should be asking the question, well, what happens when the average goes above 2%? Because that's not going to stop on a dime. I mean, they're not going to be able to fine tune it that precisely. So what happens when we get too much of a good thing and inflation is 25 3% or whatever, and now the Fed has to bring it back down? How are they going to do that? Well, it is impossible to do that. You know, the Fed is talking about a five-year window. They're kind of saying, well, we don't think we'll have to raise rates for the next five years. 
Well, assuming they, they actually keep interest rates at zero for the next five years, and if Congress continues to borrow and spend over the next five years the way it's spending now, and of course, why wouldn't it if the Fed is telling the government that they're going to monetize it? Why wouldn't they take full advantage of that opportunity? After all, it's an opportunity to provide voters with a bunch of free stuff and nobody wants to take away any of the free stuff that's already been promised because then that gets defined as a cut. So if we continue to go on this borrowing and spending binge for the next five years, the national debt will be much, much bigger five years from now than it is today. And of course, it's not just the U.S. government that is going to be taking advantage of the Fed's logress. You're going to have all of uh, the corporations, right? They're going to be borrowing more money. American individuals are going to be borrowing more money. So everybody is going to take advantage of the Fed's commitment to not raise rates for five years and keep the monetary spigots open by borrowing as much as they possibly can and continuing to buy assets. And so the bubble that we have today, assuming it doesn't pop on its own, think of how much bigger it will be when the Fed is forced to prick it by now raising rates to contain the inflationary fire that it lit. It can't do it, right? Because the reason it has to allow more inflation today is because it can't raise rates now because we have too much debt. So in order to justify it's not raising rates now when the inflation rate is really at 2% is to move the needle by allowing it to be higher so that they're not forced to do what they can't do, which is raise rates because we have too much debt to afford it. Well, if they can't raise rates now based on how much debt we have, how will they ever be able to do it in the future when we'll have much more debt than we have today? The answer is they can't. So for the people who are thinking clearly, what they know based on what the Fed just said is that rates are never going to go up no matter how high the rate of inflation is, that there is no target, average or otherwise. It doesn't matter. Whatever the inflation rate is, it's going to be that way. And it's going to keep getting higher and higher because there's absolutely nothing the Fed could do about it. Now, the Fed wants to pretend that it could do something. As I've been saying, when it comes to fighting inflation, the Fed is all bark and no bite. It has to pretend that it could do something that it can't do so it's not forced to uh, try to prove that it can do it and then show that it can't. So it always has to say, yes, there is going to be a point in time in the future where we're going to raise rates and fight inflation. But whenever it gets close to that point, it needs to move the bar like it's doing now so that it doesn't actually have to do what it's been bluffing it's going to do because it absolutely can't do it. But again, at some point, the market is going to call the Fed's bluff. And you're going to see that in the foreign exchange market. You're going to see it in the precious metals market. And finally, right, you'll see it in, in the bond market. And speaking of the financial markets, the initial reaction to the Jackson Hole comments by Powell uh, was a knee-jerk move up in the price of gold and a drop in the dollar. Now, of course, that's what you would expect, right? If the Federal Reserve is going to allow more inflation, if they are not going to raise interest rates anytime soon, that is uh, bullish for gold and bearish for the dollar. So that was the initial reaction. Although 
a lot of traders knew that this is exactly what Powell was going to say. So it didn't really catch anybody by surprise. So I think what actually happened initially is we had a buy the rumor, sell the fact reaction in that people who had bought gold and sold the dollar in anticipation of Powell's remarks on Thursday when he actually spoke the words that they had anticipated, traders looked to take profits. So they cashed in on their gold long positions and their short dollar positions. They had to buy back the dollars they sold and they sold the gold they bought. And then we had a big reversal. We ended up with a big drop in the gold market and a big rally in the dollar. And so gold finished down on the day, although off the day's lows, and the dollar finished up on the day, although off uh, the, the, uh, the daily highs. Both of those moves, however, were completely reversed today. Today, we had a rally in gold. Gold was up about $36. We closed around $19.65. The interesting thing about yesterday's sell-off is we never got below $1,900. So if you look at the way gold is trading, what used to be the resistance, the old record high, is now acting as a pretty good uh, support level. So what was the ceiling is now the floor. What was resistance is now support. And that is classic bull market action. Gold is certainly gearing up for a new move up. The dollar is gearing up for a new move down. That's exactly what happened today. The dollar index got smashed, closed at a 92 handle on a weekly basis. I think this is the first time we've done that uh, all year. In fact, I think this is the lowest close for the dollar index since, um, I think, April of 2018. Uh, something like that. We were down 68 on the day, 92.31, uh, 92.32-ish, as I am recording this podcast just after the close of the market. Uh, we didn't get into a 91 handle. We got pretty close. Uh, we got to around 92.10-ish, I think was about the low. My guess is we'll be trading with a 91 handle next week. In fact, I think we're going to see a lot of follow-through on today's move because what has happened is extremely bearish for the dollar and bullish for the price of gold. And I know one of the things that initially helped cause the rally in the dollar yesterday and the sell-off in gold, apart from the, the traders squaring up their books on the buy the rumor, sell the fact, was the fact that the bond market really sold off. In fact, the yield on the 30-year moved up quite a bit, and it was up again today. And the yield on the 10-year as well, although the yield on the 10-year uh, was down a little bit today. The spread, by the way, has widened considerably. And if you remember on the podcast, I talked about a trade that I thought could make a lot of money, which would be being long the 10-year and short the 30-year, because I thought the yield curve between the 10 and the 30 would steepen considerably. And that's exactly what's happened because now you're looking at the yield on the 10-year at just below 0.73, whereas the 30-year is now above 1.5. So the yield on the 30-year is now more than twice the yield on the 10-year. So the spread has widened considerably. That's a very, very uh, uh, a good trade to have on. And my expectation is that the widening is going to continue because there's a lot of extra losses. If you think about all the inflation that the Fed is going to unleash, the extra losses 
from having to hold a treasury for those 20 extra years, right? Think about all that additional inflation that's going to transpire because if you buy a 10-year treasury, the government gives you your money back in 10 years. And so you only lose 10 years worth of purchasing power, 10 years worth of inflation. But if you have to wait another 20 years, if the government doesn't give you your money back for 30 years, that is a huge additional loss that needs to be factored in uh, to the current yield on those securities. I mean, that's why I talked on my last podcast about people going out and buying a home when you can take out a 30-year mortgage for 2.5%. I mean, it's almost as low as what the government. The government is borrowing money for 30 years at 1.5%, and an average Joe can go buy a house, and he can borrow money at 2.5%. That's almost as absurd as the government buying at 1.5%. In fact, if you think about the added so-called risk of default, it's even more ridiculous that an individual can borrow for 30 years at 2.5% than the government could do it uh, with sovereign credit risk at one and a half percent. And so the reason I was saying that it would make sense to go out and borrow money to buy a house is not because the house is going to gain value. It's not. The house is going to lose value. It just may lose value more slowly than the money that you're borrowing. And since you're borrowing it so cheap, especially considering that you could deduct it from your taxes, they're basically giving you the money to buy a house. So if you get the house for free, well, then even if it loses value, you're still ahead of the game, although you still have to maintain it. That's going to cost money. You've got to pay your property taxes. You've got to pay your maintenance. So, I mean, if, if you're going to buy a house, definitely don't pay cash for it. That's the worst thing you could do. If you're going to buy a house, let somebody else buy it for you. Borrow as much as you can and lock in that 30-year fixed rate. Uh, but I think you're going to do much better off, let's say, buying foreign stocks uh, and gold than you will buying a house because in the type of economy that I envision and the type of inflation, real housing values are going to plunge even as the value of those mortgages uh, plunges even more. But the point I was trying to make on the bond market is as the bond market sold off right away yesterday, those higher rates also weighed on the gold market and helped prop up the dollar because the traders always react to a increase in rates by thinking that that move is bearish for gold and bullish for the dollar because higher rates uh, will compete with gold, right? But what traders keep overlooking is the fact that this is only nominal rates, that bond yields are rising only nominally, that the fact that the Fed is going to allow more inflation, that additional inflation is not even close to being captured by the backup in bond yields. And so what is a problem for gold is not rising nominal yields. Gold doesn't care about nominal yields. Gold only cares about real yields. And real yields are still falling. So it doesn't matter what's happening in the bond market. Bond prices can fall. Yields could rise. None of that is supportive of the dollar. None of that is a negative for gold. And in fact, to the extent that gold reacts to interest rates at all, it's not the yield on a 30-year treasury. It's overnight money. It's the T-bill market. And there, the Fed is holding rates at zero. And they're not going to let them rise at all. And of course, the real reason that bonds are selling off is because of inflation. That's why they're going down. It's because of the added losses that bondholders are going to have to endure if they hold these bonds to maturity. And so the risk of owning bonds is going up. Uh, fewer people want to own them. The yield is going up. And what is bearish for bonds is bearish for the dollar and is bullish for gold. And in fact, again, 
when people don't want to own treasuries, what they're really saying is, I don't want to own dollars because treasuries are IOU dollars. They're promises to pay dollars in the future. And if you believe that the Fed is going to continue to print dollars and is going to allow for more inflation, well, then you know that the dollars you receive in the future will be worth less than the dollars you're loaning to the government now when you buy these 10-year or 30-year treasuries. So the bond market is going down because of inflation, and that's exactly why gold is going up. So eventually, traders are going to figure this out. They're not going to sell off gold when bonds tank. They're going to buy gold when bonds tank, because that's what they should be doing. But in the meantime, take advantage of it. I, I, I said this yesterday. I put out a tweet. When we saw that big gold sell-off, I immediately said, buy, fade this move. This is a gift uh, from the trading gods. It's from a lot of people that don't understand it yet, and they're just robotically selling gold because they see treasury yields climbing without understanding why they're rising or the true implications uh, of that rise. And of course, by today, the whole thing was corrected. And again, I think today's action is far more indicative of what's really going to be happening in the week's months and years ahead uh, than the knee-jerk trading reaction that we had on Thursday. Of course, it wasn't just the foreign exchange markets and the gold markets that were affected or the bond market. The stock market had a rally uh, yesterday and it rallied again today. It doesn't matter what happens. I mean, the traders know that more inflation is good for stocks because, in fact, that's the only thing the stock market has going for it is the fact that we have all this inflation. The fact that interest rates are going to stay low indefinitely means that there's no reason why corporations can't keep borrowing money and using the proceeds to buy back their stock. And as long as the Fed keeps interest rates at zero, there's no yield alternative in bonds. So everybody chases risk in stocks. In fact, they ignore the risk because they think stocks can only go up. And in fact, the Fed is committed to making sure that stocks only go up because that's the only thing they can do. That's the only effect their policy can have is to blow more air into the stock market bubble. So this is why stocks went up yesterday. They went up again today. In fact, the S&P 500 hit a new record high today. Uh, not so for the NASDAQ or the Dow. Both of those indexes were up today, but not into record territory. In fact, if we don't fall apart on Monday and we'd have to have, you know, a pretty big crash because Monday is going to be the last day of August. And assuming we really don't give much up on Monday, we are on track to have the best August in the U.S. stock market since 1986. It's been a long time. What was happening in 1986? Well, Ronald Reagan was president and we were having a stock market boom. And that big bull market, which started in 1980-81, uh, was raging in 1986. In fact, we didn't uh, run into the first hiccup until the October 1987 stock market crash. Uh, but you have to go back then to find a market that strong. But of course, the economy was in far better shape in August of 1986 than it is today. In fact, I think the economy was in better shape in any August, in any year than it is today. So we probably have the worst economy, at least the fundamental strength of the economy has never been worse, yet the stock market performance has never been better, which again is exactly what I talked about in my previous podcast. What's bad for Main Street is good for Wall Street. What is powering 
The stock market is the weakness in the economy. The weaker the economy gets, the more monetary stimulus we get and the stronger the stock market gets. And the more the Fed stimulates the stock market, the more it sedates the real economy. And so it's a self-perpetuating spiral, uh, which has been benefiting the stock market at the expense of the real economy. And that will continue until it can't. And you know, what, what caused that 1987 stock market crash that I alluded to was uh, our widening trade deficit. We were running big trade deficits back then that were getting bigger and bigger. And in fact, as the trade deficits were getting bigger, they were putting downward pressure on the dollar and upward pressure on interest rates. And so it was rising interest rates that were the result of a widening trade deficit and a weaker dollar that ultimately uh, caused uh, the stock market to plunge. Well, look what happened today, right? We got the July trade deficit. Nobody even cares about these numbers anymore, but we got the number that came out. They were expecting a $73 billion deficit. This is goods, right? So it's not the overall trade deficit. It's the goods deficit, which used to be called the merchandise trade deficit. Now they just call it the goods trade deficit because they want to separate out the, 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 the overall trade deficit, which includes services where we do have a surplus. But just looking at goods, uh, the deficit ended up at $79.3 billion, so far ahead of the $73 billion that they had anticipated. In fact, this deficit was the largest trade deficit since the one we had in December of 2018, which was the largest monthly trade deficit ever. And so that means the one that we just had was the second largest uh, goods trade deficit in history. Now, back in the 1980s, a trade deficit that was this much worse than estimates would have had a far bigger impact on the foreign exchange market than it had today. In fact, it had no impact because I'm watching the foreign exchange market. The dollar was down just as much before the trade deficit as it was after the trade deficit. A number like this would have, would have sent shockwaves throughout the Forex market back in the 80s when people actually understood uh, the problems that resulted from trade deficits. But because we've had such bad trade deficits for so long, people no longer worry about how bad they are, even though they're so much worse than they were when people were actually worried about them. I mean, you're talking about four or five times as big. I think I remember the 87, the deficit that we got in one month that shocked everybody was like 17 billion, right? And that number was so scary that everything tanked because we had a $17 billion deficit. Well, here, this is almost 80 billion, you know, and 17 was like, you know, uh, an outlier. And they had been a lot lower. They were like 9, 10, 11, and then we had this one big one. Well, what we're getting now is not an outlier. This is just what we get. I mean, all these trade deficits every month, month after month, they are horrific. And you know what? Now that the dollar is starting to fall, the trade deficits are actually going to rise. Why are they going to rise? Because it's going to cost us more to pay for our imports because we're going to need more dollars to buy stuff and we're going to get less for our exports. So the weakening dollar, rather than helping improve our trade balance, is going to be the reason that it's going to deteriorate even further. And of course, the more money the Fed prints and sends it out to people who aren't working and who aren't producing, now we have more money to buy stuff that people in other countries are working to produce. So the Fed's 
uh, excess inflation is going to spill over into a larger and larger trade deficits, which, of course, is going to put even more downward pressure on the dollar. And once again, it sets this vicious spiral into motion. And at some point, it is going to result in a crash. I want to finish up today's podcast by going over the Republican National Convention, the virtual convention that concluded last night. It was capped off by a very impassioned, uh, lengthy speech by President Trump, uh, basically glorifying his presidency and uh, asking the voters for four more years. Uh, There was a lot of applause. A lot of uh, Republicans are anxious uh, to give the president four more years. And, you know, again, there's a lot about what the president said and a lot of what a lot of other Republicans said that, you know, that I like. I mean, I just wish it was true. I mean, <laughs> there was a lot, some of the stuff was true. And I'm not saying that uh, Donald Trump has not done anything good as president. Look, we, he hasn't gotten us into war. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, there are a lot of presidents that have blundered us into war and that hasn't happened. You know, so we've basically had, you know, four years of relative peace And so, you know, I got to give the president credit for that. And so, yes, I mean, could President Trump have done a worse job? Of course, he could have done a much worse job. The problem is by pretending to do a great job, I think he has done a incredible disservice to the Republican Party, but more importantly, uh, to the cause of limited government, uh, freedom, the Constitution, uh, sound money. You know, there are a lot of people within the Republican Party who have really swallowed their principles in order to support uh, President Trump. And President Trump doesn't actually admit that he has rejected these principles. He still pretends that he is espousing them. Uh, He doesn't want to disappoint his base by basically saying, look, you got no choice. You got to settle for me. I mean, when you heard his daughter talking, right, and she's bragging about all of these uh, big government policies regarding mandatory family leave and, and, and other things like that, which she admits are not traditionally Republican issues. Right. They're traditionally Democratic issues because they involve government overreach. They involve government trying to interfere uh, with private contracts. They're trying to force employees to accept benefits that the government thinks they should have rather than other benefits, including higher wages that they would prefer. So now you're substituting the government coercion uh, for voluntary interaction. And the crowd is applauding as Trump's daughter is talking about the fact that her father is pushing uh, the nation to the left when it comes to labor law as if this is a good thing. But worse than that, it is all of the big government spending, the failure of the president to address entitlements, not only his failure to address them in that he didn't cut them, he enabled them to get bigger and bigger. And he signed on to more spending for welfare, more spending for warfare. Um, You know, it's one thing to say, yes, he kept us out of war, but we certainly spent a lot more money, almost as if we were in war, at least nobody was dying, but we were still spending money on the military like we were at war. Uh, And so where did all this money come from? You know, to me, the biggest difference today between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is that the Democratic Party is promising 
bigger government and they will deliver bigger government, except they want to pretend that the rich are going to pay for it. Now, the rich will pay for some of it, but they're not going to pay for all of it. The middle class and the poor are going to end up paying for a lot of the cost of bigger government. But the Democrats pretend that they're going to get that for nothing because the rich are going to pay for it. Now, when it comes to the Republicans, they're also promising bigger government and they will deliver bigger government. They just are promising to make government bigger, but not as bigger as the Democrats would make it. So the Republic, the Democrats want a lot more government every year and the Republicans want somewhat less more government every year. So both parties want to make government bigger. The question is, at what rate do they want to make it bigger? The Democrats want to make it bigger faster than the Republicans. Although when it comes to defense spending, the Republicans probably want to increase spending on defense more than the Democrats want to increase spending on defense. But the Democrats want to increase welfare spending more than the Republicans want to increase welfare spending. But they all want to increase welfare spending. But the big difference, again, is that while the Democrats pretend that the rich have to pay for all this extra government, the Republicans pretend that nobody has to pay for all this extra government. Because at the same time, the Republicans are delivering bigger government, they also want to promise tax cuts for everybody, including the rich, which makes even less sense. At least the Democrats are pretending that somebody has to pay for the extra government, even if it's not going to be adequate to pay for it. But the Republicans don't even bother with the pretense that anybody has to pay for anything. They want to say that everything is free. It is the ultimate free lunch when it comes to Republicans. We can make government bigger. We can cut everybody's taxes. And it's going to be great. No one has to pay for anything. And this is what makes everything so frustrating when I keep hearing uh, the people who are speaking at the Republican convention, including Trump, warning that if we elect Biden, he's going to raise taxes. But that's exactly what Trump has been doing even though he doesn't admit to doing it because he's increasing government spending. And the minute you increase government spending, you've increased taxes because every dollar the government spends is a dollar of taxes because that's a dollar that the government is taking out of the private sector and the private sector is going to have to pay for that dollar one way or another. And so Trump is raising taxes. He's just not raising them as much as, as Clinton might have or as much as Biden will. And of course, even if Trump gets reelected, he is going to increase taxes by making government bigger. The only real difference is what type of tax. The Democrats want to raise income taxes on the rich and inflation taxes on everybody else. And the Republicans just want to raise inflation taxes on everybody. But that's where both parties seem to agree. Everybody likes the inflation tax, except nobody wants to admit that it's a tax or that anybody has to pay it. So again, you know, it's very frustrating. A lot of the sentiments that are being expressed by a lot of the Republicans, including the president, are genuine and I agree with. And much of the criticism of the left and socialism and, and, and what Biden is saying, I agree with. But you can't just criticize socialism with your words. You know, you have to criticize it with your deeds. You can't practice socialism and condemn it at the same time. Right. I mean, it's it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, some of the speakers mentioned that Bernie Sanders, right, his radical left wing socialist policies are now mainstream 
within the Democratic Party. And that's true. But the unfortunate reality is that some of those policies are now mainstream in the Republican Party, too. There are a lot of things that the Republicans are now supporting that might have been too radical for uh, Bernie Sanders. So Sanders has influenced both the Republican and the Democratic Party. So it's very disingenuous to criticize the Democratic brand of socialism while you're advocating a Republican brand of socialism. You have to be consistent. You have to criticize socialism in all of its forms. And if you want to preach an anti-socialist agenda, then you better practice it. Because by preaching capitalism and practicing socialism, you are giving capitalism a bare name and you're opening up the door for socialism to take hold. Because when you practice socialism and preach capitalism, all the damage that gets done by the socialism gets blamed on the capitalism. And then the solution ends up being more socialism. So it's very unfortunate that Trump couldn't actually have pursued a different agenda during the last four years, actually reduced government spending, made government smaller so that he could have legitimately uh, raised uh, lower taxes. Had he done something about the ticking entitlement time bomb, had he done something to help take the pressure off the Federal Reserve to keep monetizing debt, had we had some kind of uh, return uh, to normalcy in monetary policy, meaning had interest rates been allowed to rise much higher uh, so that these bubbles would not have grown to this enormity. But of course, that's not what Trump wanted. Trump didn't want the hard way. He wanted the easy way. He didn't want to really make America great again. He just wanted to pretend to make America great again. His real goal was to keep the bubbles from popping, right? to keep the illusion alive, to keep reality uh, delayed long enough to get a second term. And look, you know, I mean, if I was still voting, which I can't do, yes, I would vote for Trump over Biden. But, you know, I mean, I would probably vote libertarian. Joe Jorgensen, I mean, she's got no chance of winning. Uh, but in Connecticut, neither does Trump. So voting for Trump is as big a waste as voting libertarian. So I may have voted libertarian because then you don't have to vote for the lesser of two evils. But, you know, I'd still rather vote for good than the lesser of two evils because the lesser of two evils is still evil. Now, the question is, does Donald Trump actually know any of this stuff? Does Trump actually believe what he's saying uh, or not? You know, I don't know. I mean, when he told everybody that his stakes were the greatest stakes in the world, did he actually believe that? Or was he just saying that to sell his stakes? You know, I don't know. Maybe he really did think they were the greatest stakes in the world. I kind of doubt it because I'm sure he's eaten some pretty good steaks in his life. I mean, he could afford the best steaks, and I'm sure those Trump steaks weren't the best steaks, but they certainly were when he was trying to sell them. So is he trying to sell a Trump presidency, a second term, the same way he was trying to sell his steaks uh, by telling the voters what the voters want to hear, just like he was telling steak buyers what they wanted to hear? Or, you know, does he really believe what he's saying? Does he really not understand uh, that by increasing government spending, he's increasing taxes? Does he really not understand the negative consequences of these artificially low interest rates and blowing up a stock market bubble? Because it certainly sounded like he understood it when he was a candidate and when he was criticizing the Fed for keeping interest rates artificially low. 
and blowing up a stock market bubble. It seemed to me that he understood the problems of the trade deficit when he was running uh, as a candidate. And now the trade deficits are bigger than ever. Look at the trade numbers that came out today. It was horrific. I mean, our trade balance has gotten much worse under Trump, yet that didn't stop him from claiming that he had some major victory when it comes to trade. I mean, he's claiming that he resurrected American industry, that he put a stop uh, to all the job losses and all, all, the, all the factories that shut down and moved out of the country. None of that has stopped. None of that has changed. The trade deficits are bigger. They're not smaller. Yes, he ran promising smaller trade deficits. In fact, one of the things that Trump said in his speech was that he's the only president that has kept all of his promises. Well, what about the promise to shrink the trade deficit? He didn't keep that. What about the promise to pay off the national debt? He didn't keep that. What about making America great again? He didn't even come close to doing that. There are a lot of promises that the president didn't keep. You know, and th- th- that is what is so, again, frustrating about watching this because I realize that as bad as, as, as the Republicans are, the Democrats are so much worse. That is that, you know, that is the predicament that we're in, right? So what are you going to do? You know, I still think that the Republicans are going to lose. I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, maybe the big increase in crime, uh, maybe that could become an issue. Uh, maybe the Democrats could scare so many people uh, that people who might otherwise uh, voted for Biden might end up voting for Trump because the Democrats scare the hell out of them. Who knows? It's possible. But, you know, nothing is going to change. Okay? We are headed for a disaster regardless of the outcome of this election. And it is going to be a disaster of unprecedented proportions. Again, it doesn't matter. The only thing that probably matters is the aftermath and maybe how quickly the collapse happens. I do think that a Biden victory could accelerate the dollar's demise and the the, the currency crisis. And also, if Biden is in office, when it hits the fan, the policy response could be even more reckless than what we would get from Trump. The, the only silver lining to having Biden in office when it hits the fan is that maybe Biden will get the blame. And if the Democrats have the House and the Senate and the crisis happens and their response makes it so much worse, then it's possible that in 2024, the election, the pendulum can swing back the other way. You know, that would be my hope. However, if Trump wins, then it's all on Trump. It's all on the Republicans and they'll have no chance of winning anything in 2024. But again, you know, I thought this about about Obama, right? I was so worried about everything collapsing on Romney that I thought it made more sense to have Biden at the helm of the ship of the Titanic when it hit the iceberg. But we were able to kick the can down the road and Obama got out of Dodge. He did his he did his uh, eight years and nothing happened. And then he you know passed the baton to Trump and it's all falling apart on his watch. It's possible that if Trump only stays in office for four years, then Biden can be the fall guy. But I think if Trump gets reelected, there is no way to kick this can down the road another four years. Again, I've been wrong about that before, but I really think we'd be pressing our luck to imagine 
we're going to be able to do it for another four years on top of where we are now, because we still have quite a few months left of 2020 before we start a full uh, four more years. But there is no way to know for sure. All you can do is, you know, prepare for the worst. You can hope for the best, but even the best scenario is still a very bad scenario. So you've got to be prepared. You've got to get out of U.S. dollars, out of U.S. bonds, out of U.S. stocks. I mean, bonds first, stocks second. But you've got to seek out the real safe havens that are available internationally in international stocks, uh, good dividend paying foreign equities, get into the precious metals, gold and silver, and get into these gold and silver mining stocks. If you can afford to take the added risk, I think you'll be more than well compensated with the additional higher return. 